Amen. You may be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to pick it up this morning in verses 19. We're going to look at verses 19 to 21 this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Last week, we talked about the need to pay, to, to give compensation, to have remuneration for your elders, for your pastors who preach, who teach the Word of God. We looked at verses 17 and 18 last week, and we talked about the fact that uh, in the same way that widows are to be cared for, and, and as the Scripture says, given an honor, uh, in the same way that you would honor and care for widows by providing them with financial compensation, you're to honor and to care for the elders among you who rule well, especially in preaching and in teaching. We looked at that word to rule or to govern, and we recognize that the pastors within the church have a very sacred responsibility before God to govern and, and to oversee the flock, ultimately for the, for the blessing of the church and for the glory of God's name. We used a very touchy word, this word submit. And I talked about how in all of life, when it comes to authority, there's one of two perspectives to one extreme or to the other. And on the one hand, there are those among us who are extremely libertarian, who think that there shouldn't be any authority to each his own. Don't bother me. I won't bother you. I'll take care of my business. You take care of your business. And, and we don't have to have anybody presiding over us. And, and they sort of eschew and shun all types of authority. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have those who so fear man that they don't want to do anything that might offend or upset the apple cart, that might offend or upset those who happen to be in authority. And, and you have these two extremes where you have a very authoritarian perspective. We need the government to preside and rule over the affairs of men. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have those who say, we don't need anyone telling us what to do. And we recognize that these two philosophies sometimes find their way into the church so that you have church members who sometimes will regard pastoral leadership, shepherding, as an unnecessary burden, whereas on the other side, sometimes you'll have individuals who look to the pastor and say, oh, well, we can't do anything unless the pastor agrees to it, and we need him to sign off on everything that happens around here, and let's never cross the pastor. After all, he is God's holy one, his anointed one, and we should respect that. And what we actually find in this particular section of Timothy is that both of those are wrong. Last week, we talked on the idea of submission to pastoral authority, and this week, we're going to look on the next couple of verses in which Paul writes to Timothy about the need for accountability with pastoral authority. And so if you're here this morning and you're the type of individual that believes we should never cross the pastor and the pastor can do no wrong, while that's certainly true of me. <laughs> I tease, I tease. While some of us might hold to that perspective, I think you'll find that the scripture this morning will confront that. We have one king. His name is not... Joshua Claycamp. It's Jesus Christ. Let's read this verse. We'll pray. We'll ask for God's help, and then we'll get to work. Verse 19. I'm just going to read the, uh, the verses that we're going to be focusing on this morning. First Timothy 5.19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 20. As for those who persist, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. 
in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we just thank you this morning as we gather together here. We thank you, Father, for your word, for its incredible clarity and accuracy, for the precision with which you speak to all manner of life, whether it be our nine-to-five daily job, whether it be how we are to live as moms and dads in the home, caring for children, what our role is in society to the world around us, the contributions we make to culture, and even here, Lord, within the church, how we're to live as your people in relationship with each other and how we are to properly regard those whom you have appointed over us to lead us. We thank you for the reminder, sobering as it is this morning, Lord, that ultimately all authority is derived from you and all authority is intended to reflect your glory. God, we pray this morning, your church, as difficult as these verses are, when we encounter situations in which we must confront pastoral leadership, I pray, Heavenly Father, for myself, number one, that as I continue to serve this amazing family, that I would always do so from a heart to glorify you. I pray, Lord, that I would never be tempted to lead in such a way or or that I would be able to overcome the temptation where the leadership that I provide would be done, God forbid, to bring glory to my name or recognition for myself instead of lifting high the precious name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the privilege to be a part of this family this morning. I thank you for the joy that it is to fellowship here with all of these wonderful brothers and sisters. And I pray for them this morning, Lord, though I love them and though I know they love me, I pray, God, you would use this message this morning to remind them of their responsibility to look first to your son and only to your word and to evaluate the teaching ministry that comes from this pulpit according to what you have authoritatively spoken in your word. God, be with them this morning and be with me as we make clear these things that you have spoken. We pray your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to understand and to receive all that there is here for us in this text this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A house divided cannot stand. And sometimes the word of God calls us to address divisions that occur within this house. And although we know the truth that a house divided cannot stand, we are right to approach the correction, the putting right of a divided house with a somber spirit of fear that we would walk carefully into those types of discussions because of all the churches in the New Testament, Ephesus shows us the long-term effects, the long-term consequences of what can happen if we have bad pastoral leadership, if we fail to address bad pastoral leadership, and even when we do address bad pastoral leadership, what lingering results may continue on even for decades. 
The planting of the church in Ephesus is a bit of a mystery to us. We first begin to encounter it in Acts chapter 18. There's an account of Apollos who is making his way through the inward country, and and it talks about Apollos being a Jew who is trained from Alexandria. He's obviously an intellectually sophisticated person. The scripture makes the statement that he was mighty in the scriptures. He goes to Ephesus. He begins to preach, and there are there these two uh, fellow helpers of the Apostle Paul. Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, and it says in Acts chapter 18 that they take Apollos aside and they explain to him more carefully the way, as he had only been preaching the baptism of John. That is a baptism of repentance and a baptism of preparation, but it is not the fullest understanding of baptism, which is that baptism, as we'll see tomorrow evening in the frigid waters of the Thompson River, the baptism is a baptism of hope and resurrection. And so Apollos wasn't preaching the full gospel. Priscilla and Aquila explain it to him. He takes off on his merry way. In Acts chapter 19, the apostle Paul shows up in Ephesus, and it says that when he comes to Ephesus, he finds there, even after Priscilla and Aquila have been doing this ministry and trying to explain things to Apollos, he finds there men that are still confused about the idea of baptism. And Paul asks them the question, have you heard that there was a Holy Spirit? They said, we have not heard of this Holy Spirit. We have not heard of this new new life, to which then Paul poses a further question, well, what were you baptized into then? And they responded, into John's baptism. And that account comes after we already read in Acts chapter 18 that Priscilla and Aquila were there in Ephesus ministering the true word, preaching the full gospel, talking about a new hope and a new life, an indwelling spirit, the Holy Spirit, the life of the resurrection which we receive when we place our faith in Christ. So even with them there ministering, Paul comes along a little bit later on, and he still finds confusion. And we find that this confusion tends to persist within the church in Ephesus for a long time. From prison, Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, the letter of the Ephesians, and he makes this statement which takes on powerful significance when he says that he encourages them to bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And you'll find, as you consider this this disagreement over baptism and this letter that's even been written to the church at Ephesus, that there is this sort of confusion regarding the fullness that we have in Christ versus all of the other rituals and and all the other accoutrements of religion. The Judaizers are prominent. We're not really sure that the Judaizers are the ones that are the major issue here at Ephesus. As we've been working our way through 1 Timothy, some of the exhortations that Paul has given to Timothy, in chapter 1 he says, Remain at Ephesus as I charged you previously in order that you may charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. And he goes on to touch on things like genealogies, the relationships that you might have to previous ancestors. And he talks about other various myths and fables. And so we understand from that that there was some sort of teaching going on that that may have uh, prioritized or emphasized your family relationship in juxtaposition of the fact that we are in Christ by faith, that he is our source and the author of our salvation. In addition, there was an emphasis on law, and we mentioned, we mentioned that in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as well. 
And in addition, these individuals who are teaching this, Paul goes on in chapter 3 perhaps to show a contrast between true godly leaders versus those who just claim to be leaders by pointing out the differences in character. It's not the quality or the eloquence of their preaching. It is the content of their character and how they behave in certain situations. And then in chapter 4, he moves back to addressing some of these concerns, and he talks on the fact that there's a bit of asceticism involved a rejection of marriage, a rejection of certain foods. And so we find that the gospel here is very, very confused at Ephesus. And we come to this passage here, and we understand this passage in light of what he said in chapter 1, charging certain persons not to teach certain things. And we recognize that there are elders, there are pastors in leadership at Ephesus who are not teaching the true gospel. Paul warned of this in Acts chapter 20. As he's making his way to Jerusalem, he pulls over in Ephesus. The ship pulls into port, and he calls for the, into Miletus, and he calls for the elders from Ephesus to come and meet him. And he warns them, and he says, from among your own selves will arise men, this is elders, this is pastors, who will teach twisted things and like fierce wolves will not spare the flock but will draw away the disciples after themselves. Sober warning. Later on in the New Testament the apostle John the longest living of the apostles lived well into the 90s of the first century. Writes a couple of different letters. We know that at the end of his life, he lived in Ephesus. He probably spent his final years of active ministry ministering in Ephesus. And he writes 1 John, what is undoubtedly a, a circular letter that would have been addressed to the church in Ephesus as well as the other churches. It's probably the same churches as what we find in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And he makes a statement in 1 John 2.19. He says, They went out from us, these false believers, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out in order that it would be made plain that they are not all of us. And so there was a split that happened. There was a rejection of these false believers and these false teachers. And John writes again in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 and following, a letter from Christ to the church at Ephesus in which Jesus commends them by the end of the first century. And he says to them, I praise you because you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know who these Nicolaitans are exactly, but we understand there was some heretical teaching that they were putting forth, probably what Paul is addressing here in 1 Timothy. But then he goes on to rebuke them. However, you have forsaken the love of, which you had at first. And so as we step back from this church at Ephesus, understand that when these false leaders got into power, they did distort the gospel. They did make it more difficult to understand the truth of who Jesus was. They did seek to draw the disciples away after themselves. But the church, under the leadership of Timothy and maybe John later on, was able to reject this teaching and to expel, to excommunicate these false elders, these poor pastors. 
but the effects lingered such that we come to this letter in Revelation and now Jesus says, you're orthodox, but you've lost your passion for evangelism. You've lost that zeal, that love you had at first. So that the struggle of trying to purify the church for this church, Ephesus, has resulted long-term in a sort of cold orthodoxy where they do want to uphold the truth, but they become numb in their passion for Christ. Having elders in leadership, therefore, who are not qualified or who teach heretical things, even when we are able to remove those individuals from leadership, can have long-term detrimental consequences for the church. It can stifle the ministry of the church. It can leave a long-term scar. So this passage here in 1 Timothy is significant for us. We enter into this text with an appreciation for the responsibility that we have to guard our membership and to pay special attention to our leaders. But as we approach these verses this morning, let's not do so flippantly or carelessly and just think all we got to do is just kick them out and everything will be hunky-dory. The situation is improved when we strive to have purity. Don't get me wrong. That is to the glory of God. But it still hurts. Look at what Paul says here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He goes on, he says, For those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of everyone so that the rest may stand in fear. And all of this is grounded in an understanding of who God is. He makes the statement, verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of all of the elect angels, I charge you, this is Paul to Timothy, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now, as we look at the world around us, we see prejudice everywhere we turn. Recently in the culture, we've noticed the sweep of the Me Too movement. And please don't misunderstand me. This is largely a good thing. There is undoubtedly abusive men out there who have been taking advantage of women. And so as we stand up for justice, as we stand up for the rights of those who are poor and who are weaker members of our society, we celebrate much of what we see within this movement. But at the same time, we have to recognize that there is an element of vigilante justice to some of this. We live in a day and age in which you can crucify a man's reputation before the facts have ever been heard simply by what is posted on social media and what is broadcast on the nightly news to where nobody ever really gets a fair hearing. And yet the scriptures are clear here in this passage. We don't take a charge against anyone. We don't take charges against elders unless those types of things can be verified by more than one witness. It isn't a simple fact of you stand up and accuse a person and then all of society is to turn against that person and to reject him. The reason for this is because we are not to show prejudice or partiality against anyone. Paul grounds the teaching of how it is to be done in the fact that the reason it is to be done at all is that there is a holy God in heaven. And we are instructed before God, who is holy, and before Christ and the elect angels. Paul is drawing in the whole multitude of all that resides in heaven, saying they are watching us. 
And as we conduct our affairs within the church before them, we're to do so with a recognition that they see things clearly as beings in heaven. We see things from a flawed perspective. So we're not to have prejudice. We're not to play favorites. We're not to just wholeheartedly embrace the accusations of one person without a due consideration for whether or not those accusations can be substantiated by others. And so as we enter into this day and age, we look at the world around us and we say, okay, it seems that all you have to do is make an accusation loud enough get it to go viral on social media, and automatically your case is won. The problem there is that you are now prejudicing the victim and the rights of the victim over the accused and the rights of the accused. It becomes very, very easy for you just to make an accusation, to tear a man down or to tear a woman down on the basis of nothing more than just an accusation. And as we encounter this teaching on accountability for elders, pastors within the church, we see that the word of God, if there is to be a prioritization of one individual over another, the word of God does away with all prejudice by saying you are to give priority to the accused over the accuser. And the way that you do that, the way that you make sure this person is guilty or otherwise acquit him, is by making sure that those charges can be substantiated by more than one individual. So he says here, he makes the statement, do not accept or admit a charge against an elder. Now what is really interesting about this verb, it's in the passive or the middle voice within Greek. Some of you, you're like, okay, we're going on a Greek trip again. (sighs) We're not Greek nerds like you, Pastor Joshua. Need you to explain this just a little bit more fully. Happy to do that. And the example I'm going to use is a little bit morbid. It's just the one that my Greek professor gave me in seminary, and I've just always used it. The difference between an active, a passive, and a middle voice can be illustrated this way. A guy has a knife, and he's going to stab someone. Okay? The active voice says he takes that knife, and he actively stabs. He works an action upon someone else. He stabs that person. That's active voice. Now, the middle voice is where you are a participant in the action, but you're also the recipient of the action. So the middle voice can be illustrated, again, using this idea of a knife. Guy takes a knife, and he is going to do the stabbing, but then he stabs himself. He commits suicide with his knife. That's the middle voice. He performs the action, but the action he performs, he is also the recipient of it. And then the passive voice would be where someone else has the knife. And he is just there, and he passively receives the action. Somebody stabs him with a knife. Here in this particular verse, Paul uses the middle voice. He is saying, Timothy, you are not to allow yourself. You are not to allow yourself to receive charges against other elders unless there's two or three witnesses. Now, given the circumstances and what we know is happening in Ephesus, given the fact that Paul himself says in Acts chapter 20, hey, I know bad guys are going to come out of your very own group here. Given everything we've seen in First Timothy to this point, all of these instructions that are given to Timothy, you'd think, you'd think that what Paul would say to Timothy is, hey, you know what, just clean house. 
just sweep the whole lot of them aside, just do away with all of them. Let's just start over from scratch. And yet that is not what Paul says. Yes, in the very next verse, he's going to talk about what needs to happen to people who persist in sin. But Paul is still concerned for the innocents. He still is worried about those who love God, who are doing the best that they can by his grace. And he's saying, for this group, for anyone in the church, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a deacon, whether it's just an ordinary individual in the church, we don't accept charges against anyone. We don't prejudice ourselves against the accused. We don't favor the accusers. We do things according to what has been spoken to us by God in heaven. And the way that we do things is that we only listen, we only allow ourselves to hear those charges which come from two or three witnesses. He's quoting, of course, from Matthew chapter 18. In the New Testament, the first time Jesus mentions the word church, the word ecclesia, he talks about a binding and a loosing that is including within the membership of the church individuals who profess faith in Christ. That's the first time he mentions the word church in the New Testament. The very second time he mentions the word church in the New Testament comes in Matthew chapter 18. And he again references this idea of binding and loosing. But whereas in the first instance, he talks about including people into the membership of the church, including them in, making them a part of your family, Here, in this next instance, he's going to talk about removing them, that is, excommunicating them. And in Matthew chapter 18, he lays out very specific instructions. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So the first step, the first step that we need to take in any dispute, whether you have an issue with a pastor or whether you have an issue with another member in this church, it is not to go onto Facebook, it is not to go onto Twitter and to air your dirty laundry out there for the whole wide world to see. And those of you who have ever done that, I need you to understand that is sinful in God's eyes. We, as a church family, are called to present the gospel to the world. If there's anything you're posting on Facebook or Twitter, it needs to be that Jesus loves you and he died for you. Maybe John 3.16 would be a better verse. But if you have an issue, you're called first and foremost not to broadcast it publicly, not in the hopes that it will go viral on social media, but out of love, you're called to go and speak to that person one-on-one. And I hear all the time, well, this person intimidates me. Some people have strong personalities. I get that. And yet that does not absolve you from your responsibility to go and to be reconciled to that person one on one. Jesus couldn't have been any clearer. We're not to go and talk to all of our people at care group or Bible study. We're definitely not to post it on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and the like. If there is something that someone has done against you, regardless of how intimidating they are, regardless of what position they may or may not hold in the church, you are a child of God. You have a spirit of power and love, not of fear and weakness. And you're called by God to go as Jesus has done for all of humanity and to pursue reconciliation one on one. Assuming that that doesn't work. Assuming that they have legitimately sinned and done wrong. 
and then you go to them and they don't listen. Then you move to step two, which, in case you're paying attention, still does not involve Facebook or Twitter. Step two. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if not, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you in order that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is what Paul is quoting in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It doesn't mean that someone did something wrong to you and now you're going to take your group of buddies who had no observation of what happened, who didn't see it with their own eyes. It doesn't mean that you're just going to take your buddies who are in your corner who love you and believe everything you say and you take them and then the three of you gang up on this person. The idea here, according to Jewish law, is that there was more than one individual who witnessed the offense. The idea that's being presented here, although we don't find this within the scriptures, this isn't how the word of God phrases it, but this is how Western culture phrases it, is that you are innocent until proven guilty. You are to be presumed to be upright unless you can be convincingly condemned by multiple evidence and multiple witnesses. And that's what Jesus is teaching. So there are two or three individuals that go along with you, and uh, they saw the offense, they saw the crime. Three, two, or three confront this person if he still doesn't listen. And there are three individuals who saw it happen and he still doesn't listen, then and only then does it go public, still not public on Facebook or Twitter. In this day and age of social media, I want to be very clear. We keep things in-house. This is not something for a watching world to see. This does not in any way contribute to their understanding of who Jesus is, and therefore we're not called to share all of this with an unbelieving watching world. So you're not to post anything on Facebook or Twitter if two or three are not able to bring a person to repentance, then it goes to the larger church. Then it goes to a congregational setting. And of course, the scripture says the church is then called to intercede, to appeal to this person, having heard the evidence of these two or three witnesses. And if he still won't repent at that point, having thoroughly established the legitimacy of the charge, then and only then, do you remove this person from your fellowship? You bar them from participating in communion. They are no longer one of us. As John says in 1 John 2.19, they are sent out from among us in order that it may be obvious that they're not of us. Now, standing over top of all of this is the fact that this individual has committed a legitimate sin. Winston Churchill, not the most moral of men, but definitely a great leader, had a real strong personality clash with uh, one of the aristocrats of Britain in that day. A lady, her name was Lady Astor. And at a hotel on a retreat at one point in time, there's an account of Winston Churchill going into the elevator. He'd been up late drinking. He was drunk. And of course, Lady Astor hated Churchill. And Churchill hated Lady Astor. And they didn't get along. And he walks into the elevator. And he's drunk. And she sees him. And she says, Churchill, with disgust dripping in her voice, you're drunk in the most condemning voice that she could muster. To which Churchill looked at her and said, Yes, my lady, and you're ugly. (laughs) He said, 
Yes, my lady, and you're ugly, but tomorrow I'll be sober. This is the wit of Winston Churchill. Now, sometimes people just don't get along. And yes, that type of language falls well within the purview of Scripture. And if you were to say something like that to your fellow believer, your fellow brother or sister, and there were witnesses, we would address that type of language here at First Baptist Church. But sometimes personalities clash and people just don't get along. Just because you don't get along with someone is not grounds for you to initiate a process of church discipline. I cannot tell you how many times I've had people come into my office and say, I'm really ticked off because so-and-so did such-and-such, and and I'm listening very carefully to the whole thing. I'm like, okay, well, what about this? And I I ask them a couple of questions. I'm sorting through it. At the end of the day, it's just a misunderstanding. And I'm very clear. You go and you talk to that person, and you resolve it. The first question I sometimes ask when people come to me and they say, I I have something I want to share with you. I say to them, and can I repeat this to others? No, 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 no. This just stays between the two of us. No, I don't need to hear it then. If you have a problem with someone else in this church, the word of God doesn't advise you to go around and whisper it to a bunch of other people to get on the gossip mill, to engage in slander. The word of God calls you to go and confront that person, to share your heart, to seek to be reconciled. But there are times in which the charge is true. It is legitimate. There are multiple witnesses. And there are times in which we are called to address, even within pastoral leadership, sin and to remove men from office. This is a sobering reality of the very next verse. You'll notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. A number of years ago, I knew a lady. This is from a church in Texas. She was a sweet, sweet lady. She was in her mid-40s at the time that I knew her. And she had the unfortunate uh, experience of growing up without a father. It wasn't that her father had died or that uh, he and his wife had divorced or that he had um, done something to be estranged from the family. It was truly simply a case of he went to work one day, he was at work that day, his employer recalled him being there that day, and yet he simply just did not come home at the end of the evening. His vehicle was never found. He was just disappeared, gone forever. 
They didn't know if he had been abducted, if he had been murdered, if something tragic had happened to him. They didn't know whether he'd gotten bored with them as a family, if he'd just taken off and pursued another life somewhere else. They didn't know if he'd had an accident, if he was at the bottom of a river somewhere. They had no idea of what happened to this man. She grew up her whole life going through all of those experiences that children go through in which they long for the perspective and the influence of a godly father. She grew up not really knowing how to date boys, not really knowing what the the protocol here was, not having a father who would say all those loving things like, I'll be waiting by the door with a shotgun when you come home, and, you know, just to love on her and to protect her. Okay, maybe that's a Texas idea. I get that only a few of you chuckled, but that's how we do it in Texas. Okay, it's just out of love, all right? Now, she didn't have a father like that, and so she wondered all her life, what her life might have been like. And she shared with me as we were attending the same church, she said, you know, I have spent so much time and energy wondering about what might have been. And she says, one of the greatest joys of being a Christian is knowing that even though I was without an earthly father, I was never without my heavenly father. Tragically, she discovered during my time in that church with her, what actually had happened to her father. He had left the family. He had gone to another place to start a new life. There was never any explanation of why he did that. And as he started his new life, he had gotten involved in some shady business dealings and had ended up murdered under a different name. He was no longer alive, she would never have the opportunity to ask him why he left, only that he did, and he was gone forever. But the thing that she shared with me that really stood out to me, growing up my whole childhood, not knowing what happened to my father, caused me to always look at my mom with a little bit of suspicion. Did she drive him away? What happened? And it hurt that relationship. What Paul says here in 1 Timothy 5.19, for those who persist in sin, you are not to do what is so common amongst churches these days, where you have a pastor or someone who's in leadership and they just, one day they're there and then the next day they're not. And it slowly trickles out that they were asked to resign or that they were asked or encouraged to move on to some different church, even given a positive reference or positive recommendation. You're not to do that. Because what happens in those types of situations then is you have church members who don't know what happened behind closed doors and maybe this man was dismissed for legitimate reasons. Maybe there was a moral failure or a moral shortcoming. But you know what? It could also have just been simply this, nothing more than a personality conflict. Maybe two Baptists met in the elevator and one was drunk. And the other one said, you're drunk. To which he replied, you're ugly. I'll be sober tomorrow. Maybe it was just a simple tit-for-tat sort of personality clash. Of course, if he was drunk, then we'd have to do church discipline for that. It could be something serious. It could be something minor. 
But now everybody in the church congregation questions their leadership the same way that this dear sister of mine always was suspicious of her mom. Now everybody's wondering what's going on behind closed doors. Can we really trust? Can we really have confidence? And often I talk with church leaders, and it's always going to happen. In my own personal ministry, I've encountered twice on two different occasions where you had a staff member or you had an employee in the church who engaged in immoral behavior, who disqualified themselves from ministry and had to be dismissed. I've encountered it twice in my own ministry. You're always going to have these sorts of things happen. It's not a question of if it's going to happen. It's always a question of when it will happen. Satan always gets involved. He always messes things up in the church. And so the counsel that Paul gives to Timothy is very, very important for us. He does not encourage Timothy to sweep it under the rug, to quietly dismiss these people to quietly make life difficult for them so that they want to leave the church. He does not counsel Timothy to do that. On the contrary, there is a biblical process to be followed, a process of church discipline where legitimate evidence can be marshaled, where there's more than one witness. And if this individual is guilty of sin, quoting book, chapter, and verse, and it's not a personality issue, then when you remove him, you do it publicly. Notice what he says here in verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, and that assumes that the whole Matthew 18 process was followed, that one person went one-on-one, and then there were two or three, and then it went to the whole congregation, and yet they persisted. And in this particular instance, they're teaching false doctrine. They are downplaying the true character of Jesus. They keep doing that. Paul's statement is, Rebuke them in the presence of everyone. Interesting word that is used here. It means, it has as its root this idea of light or exposure, this idea of bringing it out of the shadows, bringing it out from behind closed doors, bringing it out for the whole world to see it. So there's no more of this whispering, well, what happened? What took place? It's out there. The whole world sees it. Everyone knows it for what it is. They are to be rebuked. They are to be dismissed. They are to be sent away. It is to be public. It is to be done in the presence of everyone. So at the end of the day, maybe you don't like the decision. Maybe you don't agree with what happened. But whatever the case is, you're not left wondering. You're not left in a state of perpetual suspicion. You know this is what happened. And then you can decide whether or not you agree with it or whether or not you disagree with it. But again, if we're following church discipline. And we're doing it the way that God calls us to. A majority of your brothers and sisters agreed with it. It was done publicly. Which means if you didn't like what happened, you need to recognize the fact that you're a part of a church that disagrees with you individually and disagreed with this individual who was excommunicated. That's the totality of what you need to come to terms with. All of this brings us back to the reality that even pastors can be dismissed. Otherwise, this wouldn't have been written. The underlying truth here is that there is one who has died for you. There is one who has given all for you. 
And there is only one whom you are to follow and to uphold as king without questioning. And his name is Jesus. Now, so often, we tend to want to ignore things. We tend to want to not pay attention to what's going on, just keep our heads down. We hate conflict. But this verse calls all of us to a sober recognition that for any one of us at any given time, we might actually find ourselves in a place of conflict with someone we love, even our pastor. There is a king who calls you sometimes to controversy. And if you love him as your king, that means you have to begin preparing yourself spiritually for controversy because it will come sooner or later. This point is deeply illustrated to us. Judges, in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 9. We conclude this great reign of Gideon. We come to the end of his life in which he dies and he leaves 70 sons after him who sort of take on a leadership role within the nation of Israel at that time. And one of his sons, one of his sons, Abimelech, he decides that he wants all the authority and all the glory for himself. And so he strikes down all of his brothers, kills them in cold blood. He conspires with the Shechemites. He undertakes to establish himself as king. But one of his brothers got away, a a brother by the name of Jotham. And as Abimelech consolidates power, as he establishes his rule, Jotham goes up on a mountain and he cries out over the entire land of Israel. And he tells this profound parable. He says, one day the trees decided to appoint a tree to be king over them, to hold sway over them. They first approached the olive tree. They said, olive tree, would you be our king? To which the olive tree replied, oh, I'm not going to leave my abundance of fruit, olives, by which kings are honored and men are glorified. I can't turn away from that. No, no, no. I will not hold sway over you. And so one by one, they went to the different trees in the forest. They went to the fig tree. They went to the vine tree. They went to the cedar tree. And one by one, each of these trees said, thanks, but no thanks. And as they're working their way through the trees, you notice the progression as it goes from a bigger tree to a smaller tree to a smaller tree till at last they come to the bramble bush, the thorn bush. And they say, thorn bush, will you be king over us? Will you hold sway? And the thorn brush says, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. This little bush on the ground calling all of the majestic trees of the forest to bow down underneath its shade. But if you are not anointing me king in good faith, then let fire come out of the bramble and let it devour the cedars of Lebanon. It's such a profound parable because it tells us two things. 
They were looking for someone to provide shade, to hold sway. They were looking for leadership that could bring blessing. And yet when no leaders stood up, when they were forced to turn to the weak and the worthless among them, they were setting themselves up for disaster. And the end result of Abimelech's reign was that the nation was torn asunder and a bloody civil war ensued. Scars that lingered a long time. We come to the end of this message today and we recognize that we have a responsibility to confront bad leadership when we see it, but we also know that even when we do, it's going to hurt. How do we avoid this situation in the first place? The answer to that question is what comes next week. Paul's next statement is, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not be hasty in the ordaining of men to eldership. Once they're in, they're entitled to all the rights and privileges of every other member of the church. And yet we recognize they can still do great damage. The answer is to be discerning on the front end. But as we conclude this morning, understand this. Pastoral leadership, good or bad, Jesus is our king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for the instruction and the counsel that you give to us from 1 Timothy. Lord, we pray that you would just always remind us, all of us, all of us here at First Baptist Church, that you are our king, that you call us to undertake certain things for the glory of your name. Father, whenever there are interpersonal conflicts, we pray, God, that you would help us to see the difference between an interpersonal conflict and true sin. That you would give us the grace, Lord, to pursue reconciliation, to pursue love, and that you would give us the courage and the faith, Lord, when necessary, to do the hard task of sifting through those who do not truly love you. We know you call us to controversy and conflict. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I pray, God, that you would work amongst your people to show them that controversy and conflict, though painful and difficult, is not a thing to be avoided at all cost that sometimes it is necessary for the glory of your name. I pray, God, you would prepare us as a church to always walk in faithful obedience to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to partake.